Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we have a brand new guest talking about their journey through the world of martial arts. My guest today is an American karate and kickboxing competitor, instructor, broadcaster, and promoter who helped achieve the success of the Professional Karate Association and the early establishment of professional kickboxing in the United States. He's appeared in movies, been featured in numerous martial arts publications, and won countless awards, including the Black Belt Magazine Man of the Year. Please welcome my guest today, Joe Corley. How are you doing today, sir? Great, sir. Good to speak with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to have you on the show. So with all my guests, what we like to do is go back to the beginning. Just talk about that that first experience. When when did you first encounter martial arts, and, and what was that first spark that led to you getting involved in martial arts? Yeah, great question. Uh, we um, I, I grew up in a military family, and in my dad's generation, they would set up boxing rings in the gyms. And then when kids had problems with one another, the, uh, the PE coach would throw four gloves in the ring, tell them to put them on and get it worked out, and then they would be friends after that. As we... Uh, ended up in Austria and Germany and other places. Uh, my dad taught me to box when I was uh, six years old. He gave me a pair of boxing gloves and um, and a, a baseball glove and, and baseball. And so the things I always enjoyed most were uh, fighting and playing baseball. And um, my dad died when I was 10. And I ended up uh, going back to the military school that he had enrolled me in in the first grade. And then we were in Europe on the second, third, and fourth grade, and my mom re-enrolled me there in the fifth grade. Half the kids at the military school are kids whose parents want them to get a military education. The other half are kids that the parents can't stand having at home. And so the same kind of kids that my dad trained me for to deal with who would be the bullies in the neighborhood on these army bases were the kids whose parents would send them off to boarding school because they didn't really want to deal with them at home. Wow. So. My dad had always uh, taught me to not take crap from people. And so uh, as I got into the ages of uh, 15 and 16, I realized that adults were fighting different than boys. I had never lost a fight as a, as a kid, but I saw that the adults were going to be meaner to one another. And so uh, I saw an ad for a uh, karate class. Uh, in the YMCA here in downtown Atlanta. So I, I joined it at age 16. And within the first week or so, I realized I had found a home. And um, so that was my first experience with, with the actual classes themselves. <clears throat> in retrospect, I can say that what it gave me was a, a kind of um, parental figure, uh, uh, maybe a, a male father figure with martial arts instructors. And it had a Zen quality to it that uh, appealed to me. And uh, it was based on the same thing that, say, Walker, Texas Ranger was based on, you know, and uh, where the good guys are supposed to 
you know, outlive the bad guys. So that that was uh, that was what got me started with it. it. Was just the idea that I wanted to defend myself against people who were more likely to be vicious in their fighting than than they were when I was a kid. And that first style you studied, if, if I'm reading correctly, was Tung Soo Do. What what was it about that specific style? What did you really enjoy? Had you looked at any other styles, or was that just the first one you found? No, you know, in those days, everything was known as karate. Um, as you real, as you know, the early black belt magazines were all focused around judo. But it was uh, in the early '60s that the flow started going towards karate. But for many years, the Koreans called what they were doing Korean karate. Yep. And later they would use the name Taekwondo. And then uh, a number of styles went into the Taekwondo, as most of your listeners will will already know. Uh, Tung Sudo Mudokwan was the style. But for me at the time, it was karate. I didn't know I was in a Tung Sudo class. I thought I was in a karate class. I guess the news about that then was that the Japanese had occupied Korea for so long that the forms in the, in the Korean karate were the same as they were in the Japanese karate. And so there was very little difference. It was only later when the Koreans started focusing on the Olympics, they tried to separate themselves from what had been their base in martial arts early on. Historically, Tang Sudo was founded by Wang Qi, and he had more Chinese influence in his style than the other forms of, of martial arts in Korea. So I, I can't say there was anything that attracted me to it. Over the years, the people I met in Tang Sudo seemed to be really highly pre- principled people, and they had uh, uh, really good fighters and athletes uh, under the people that were in the Tang Sudo organization here in America, which was smaller than the Taekwondo group because the Taekwondo group essentially assimilated all the other different styles from from Korea. So now you you started at, at 16 in Tang Sudo, and I'm, I'm reading here you got your black belt at age 19 and opened your first school. So what, what was it that made you want to teach? Well, you know... Uh, most of our families in the world are not leave it to beaver families. And so there's a certain level of dysfunction in most of them. Uh, my mom ended up being a, um, an alcoholic and, sh- and a lonely person after the death of my dad. And at home, things were pretty turbulent. I, I would ride 90 minutes in each direction to the military school every day on the bus. So I would leave at dark in the morning, come home at dark at night. And uh, when I got involved in the karate, it was a real release for my frustration. And, you know, as a, as a teenager frustrated with a mom who didn't understand what you were doing and you didn't understand your mom, then the, the idea that I could actually get into a place, my instructor was leaving Atlanta. And so he offered myself and, and one of our brown belts the uh, ability to buy the school from him, which we had built up. So it was an opportunity for me to have a, a job, really, at the time that I enjoyed doing. So I was teaching private lessons for $4 an hour and doing about 50 of those a week. So I was making about $200 a week in 1967, which was decent enough for me at the time. And so when I started competing and all that, and the, the newspaper would cover it and, and those kind of things in Atlanta, then it just became a real natural place for me to be. So you mentioned competing, and I know, you know, that's such an important part of your history in martial arts as a competition. What drew you to competition? Was, 
were you involved in others? I know you mentioned baseball and stuff. Was just was the competition part just a natural progression, or was there something specific you were seeking out with competing in martial arts? Well, you know, at that age, I don't, I wasn't clever enough to be seeking out anything. You know, I wasn't saying to myself, I need to find something that I can compete in. But I pitched in baseball, and what I look back on that and, and realize I enjoyed about it was the one-on-one drama of the pitcher versus the batter. You know, there was a, a lot of thinking going on. And like in martial arts, you know, it's wonderful to have an opening in sparring, but if you don't have a technique that will, you know, get you into that opening, then it's nice that you recognize it, but it's really irrelevant because you can't do anything about it. So in baseball, you had to have a certain number of pitches. You had to have a fastball, a slider. In those days, we had a knuckleball, a curveball, something that we would have called a drop ball, or they call it a sinker now. So you'd have all these pitches, and the batter would be wondering what was coming. And what I, in retrospect, have really enjoyed about martial arts was that ability to create an opening or find an opening and have a technique that would go into it. But the intensity that I would feel in competition in retrospect was uh, was where you blocked out the rest of the world. And, you know, like a race car driver going 200 miles an hour on a track, your senses are just heightened in all ways with all the irrelevant stuff gone. So um, I think that's what I found in competition, not necessarily what I was seeking. And it gave me a, a great outlet for just regular frustration. And when did the kickboxing come into that? You know, that's something that you kind of helped uh, really bring to the U.S. and stuff. And when did you decide to make that switch from regular martial arts competition to kickboxing? Well, you know, I started in 1963 and in 1974 is when Mike Anderson and Joe Lewis announced the first world full contact championships in L.A. Prior to that, uh, I had been featured on the cover of Black Belt magazine with our Southeast Karate Association rules. And the title of the article was to hit or not to hit. And in the SEKA, um, we had decided that we were sick of watching people rush into you, reach out, grab hold of your uniform and hold you and just keep pumping you with punches. So we said, while they're closing that gap, basically protected by the rules saying you can't hit them on the way in, uh, and they would take advantage of the no contact rules in order to grab you and hold you, we decided if someone came in to do that, you could hit them as hard as you needed to in the face to stop them. And if they couldn't continue, then you won. You weren't disqualified. Nice. So we found in keeping statistics that our number of injuries actually went down in our competition because the fighters realized that the rules were not their protector, but their own common sense was going to be their protector. Okay. So when full contact uh, was announced, uh, I went for it. Uh, the other thing that had happened prior to that is there was a fighter whose name I never mentioned. He's someone I got disqualified against in a tournament one time. And uh, we were going to fight a 15, three-minute round fight until one person stopped or until it went to a decision. But it was going to be a full contact match. There wouldn't have been any pads or anything uh, at the time because... We weren't wearing safety gear at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went and started training with Mong Ji up in Ohio, getting ready for that fight in the Burmese Bondo. And uh, of course, the Burmese Bondo is a first cousin to, you know, Muay Thai. 
And so I was working on that. And then this, uh, this tournament came up in LA. Nine months prior to that tournament, I had had to get a spinal fusion though. And so I'd been laid up for six months wearing a corset, you know, so as not to disrupt the three-level fusion. So they invited me to be a judge in that first world championship. And of course, Joe Lewis, Bill Wallace, Jeff Smith, and Isaiah Duenius won the first four titles. And in watching Bill Wallace fight that night, I thought that I would be able to successfully challenge him. So I created a challenge in, within a month or so when we set it up for the following Battle of Atlanta in May. So from our background of wanting to have the fighting realistic and not point fighting where people would get touched on the face and then lie down and cry in the floor and beg the officials to disqualify their opponents and make the whole sport look like it was less than manly man, the full contact just became a real natural, natural draw for me. Now, you mentioned the Battle of Atlanta, and that's, you know, you were one of the founders of, if I'm mistaken, one of the, probably the second or third longest running martial arts tournaments in the country, still going to this day. Kind of talk about what led to creating that that tournament and that competition and, and how you've managed to keep it going all these years. Well, I remember walking into the gymnasium, which was the Oglethorpe College Gymnasium with my partner, Chris McLaughlin. He was the co-founder with me in the karate school that we talked about. And also the co-founder with me in the Battle of Atlanta, a lifelong friend of mine still. And we walked in there and we, we looked at each other and we said, you know, we're going to put together this tournament, which would later be called the Battle of Atlanta. And we want to have the best competitors we can have here in the world. And what we've learned as we've traveled and fought everywhere is that no tournament started on time. Every tournament was disorganized and it was just a level of disorganization that was there that we would see some were more organized than others but the best were still disorganized and so we said if we if we go to a movie and the movie is supposed to start at 905 we expect to see it start at 905 and if somebody shows up for this karate tournament and is supposed to start at nine o'clock on saturday morning you shouldn't have to put them off for an hour or two so we began in Stephen Covey terms, later I become a, uh, became a real advocate of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So we were habit one, being proactive to create a tournament. Habit two, we began with the end in mind. So we said, if this is going to start at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, what do we have to do in these months leading up to it to make sure it starts at nine and not 10, not 11, not on Sunday? And so that's how we got it started. And we were in that Oglethorpe Coliseum in 1970 and 1971. Then in 1972, uh, Chuck Norris had invited me out to train there in, in L.A. And I had spent some time with his guys when I got uh, featured on the first cover of uh, my first cover on Karate Illustrated. And so uh, I had then stayed in touch with them and Pat Johnson had become my mentor. So I invited Chuck out and he brought with him uh, uh, Mike. Well, he came in 1972 and then in 1973 brought Mike Stone and Bob Wall and Tadashi Yamashita, Pat Johnson. They were our referees in 73, which is, was our breakthrough year. But the start of the tournament, which was your question, was to create something that would be fair to people from every region. And that was the other thing that we saw, that there was regional bias everywhere you went. And there were only a handful of people that ever went outside their region and, and beat others. And oddly enough, those ended up being Joe Lewis, Bill Wallace, and Jeff Smith, of course, who won the first three world titles in 1974. But other than that, virtually no one would leave their region and be able to defeat the others. So 
we made it fair to everyone. And so the very first Battle of Atlanta uh, actually had Joe Lewis winning it from Los Angeles and Mitchell Bobro winning the heavyweight division from Washington, D.C., and Joe Hayes winning the lightweight division from New York City. So those first few years of the Battle of Atlanta, was it strictly fighting or were you still doing, were you doing forms and weapons at the time or did that come much later? Yeah, we were doing forms. Um, I can't remember there being much weapons competition at the time. I may be wrong about it because I just didn't pay any attention to it, but I I think it was basically forms and fighting. Okay. And so what led to all the changes over there? Like when did the partnership with NASCA come and and, and kind of the the changing of the tournament and stuff over the years? Well, the Battle of Atlanta was uh, kind of an independent uh, event for all of the years, um, we had the the uh, latitude and the what you would call, I guess, the incentive and perhaps the insight to um, to to generate new rules and and things that we didn't have to really organize with anyone else. And there were really not many. The organizational thing came about when there was a group of us as tournament promoters and competitors thought we could perhaps take it to the next level by all working together, which has been a, a fallacious idea, you know, from from the very beginning. But we, we tried it for a number of years, and I think it was in the late 70s, I guess, when we first started working with the other people. I, I was doing in 1979, we started, we were on ESPN the, the first week that ESPN was on the air, and we did the Battle of Atlanta in 79 in the fall on ESPN. And then in 1980, uh, I got the Diamond Nationals and the U.S. Open onto uh, ESPN with us to help grow them. And we called that a, a triple crown event. So we ended up standardizing the rules and started training officials and referees. And that all went very well for a, a, a relatively long period of time. And and there were magazines at the time who were still covering the activities of the fighters and helping create stars in the sport. So people like Carmichael Simon and people like that uh, could get some coverage. But then the, around the middle of the 80s, all of that stopped. And um, so we actually went ahead and bought a magazine and produced it. We printed 125,000 copies uh, every every month that was uh, done with um one of the large manufacturers, or I should say distributors for magazines. And so we tried to then continue the coverage of the athletes in that magazine. We lost a ton of money on the magazine in those years because it didn't sell on the newsstands because the distribution deal didn't work as it was supposed to have. But when we when we got started with NASCA, I believe that... Um, Caesar Borkowski was actually involved in the beginning, along with uh, Jim Lantrop and a couple others. And then uh, they asked me to join. And um, I forget the year now, but uh, we did that. We all traveled each other's tournaments and, you know, we, we were able to develop certain stars, you know. Steve Nasty Anderson, Keith Vitale, Ray McCallum, you know, a number of great names came out of that. And then many of those guys went on into full contact. Nice. Yeah, that's the one turn I never got to. Att- I've been to the Diamond Nationals a handful of times is where I knew a lot of these names and learned a lot of these people. And my first time going was the, I think, 1990. So it's obviously it probably changed a lot from the, the first few years back in 1970, obviously. You know, yeah, when it started, it was the everything you ever wanted to know about karate, but were afraid to ask. Nice. 
Yeah, I think that my, my first experience with Diamond Nationals was actually seeing the musical forms. I had never seen anything like that before. And, and <laughs> well, do, you, do you remember what went into the decision to start adding that? Or was that, you know, was that a group decision? Was that one tournament tried it first to see how it worked? Or Well, Jim Lee had what he called Marshall Ballet up there in his studios in, in D.C. and then started uh, demonstrating it at some events. And then other competitors saw the beauty in that and started building forms around various kinds of things. And so um, in an effort to get more people to participate in tournaments, uh, it was added. I don't really remember the genesis of the of where it started, but I'm, I'm going to guess that um, that June Ree, you know, at about the time he introduced the safety equipment into the tournaments, which was 1973, the Battle of Atlanta was the second tournament to demand that everybody wear the safety gear in 1973. It was around that time, I'm guessing, that he would have started focusing people on on his martial ballet idea. Okay. So I do know, like, from my experience, it seems like, at least in the early to mid-90s, a lot of the people who were excelling in that part of the competition were the ones that were getting more noticed in like movies and TV shows and stuff. You know, the, the people who were doing that, you know, the, the musical forms and musical weapon forms and stuff, you know, people like Carmichael Simon and people like that, that were getting cast in movies and TV shows. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Because uh, they, the kind of techniques that they would end up putting into the extreme and it wasn't just the musical part. It was the extreme forms put to music, which, you know, of course evolved a little bit later than what we were just talking about. Right. But those were the kind of things that Pat Johnson, our, our good friend, uh, the one that I said was my mentor from Chuck Norris's group, you know, when he started choreographing the Karate Kid movies and Ninja Turtles and all that, he was incorporating those techniques and actually using the kids that he he met at the NASCAR tournaments to be in those. That's how Ernie Reyes ended up in the Ninja Turtles and so on. That's cool. So how did the uh, the TV commentating start for you? I know you, you actually, you know, you mentioned the stuff with ESPN and I know you and like Chuck Norris, Pat Morita, you know, being on ESPN and, and commentating on American karate and stuff. How did that come about? Well, my, my, uh, that's one of my, one of my things that I visualize, you know, four or five mornings a week, I do a, a Tony Robbins morning meditation. And he talks about three things that you think about, gives you a minute on each one of them that perhaps were coincidences that happened that changed your life. And uh, this particular story was, um, was that, uh, you know, we, after I fought Bill Wallace in the, in the middleweight title fight in the Battle of Atlanta in 1975, the people who had uh, formed the PKA with Mike Anderson and I were not getting along with one another. And so I went off and formed another organization and we started doing fights uh, under the World Professional Karate Commission. And in the course of that, uh, right at that time, Ted Turner had just formed uh, the technology available to create what for him you would know now as the Superstation, which is WTBS, mm-hmm. but it was WTCG at the the time and he was in a little house on West Peachtree Street, a half a block from a place where I would eat lunch almost every day in a in a boarding house that you know served this great southern food. So I went in there to make a presentation to his guy whose name was Sid Pike. And Sid was the no guy in the Turner organization. Whatever mm-hmm. was brought to Sid, the answer would be no. So you'd have to be pretty aggressive to get past the no. So 
at any rate, I sat with him and made the presentation. And uh, at the end of it, he looked at me. He's the kind of guy, when you're talking to him, he doesn't make eye contact with you. He doesn't acknowledge what you're saying by nodding his head or anything. At the end, I said, so what do you think? How should we go about this? He said, we're not interested. And I said, okay. And so, um, and he wasn't the kind of guy that you could then overcome objections with, you know, like you couldn't say, well, which part of it is it that you don't find interesting? Is it this? Is it that? He wasn't that kind of guy. So I packed up, I'm leaving the building and Ted Turner, uh, as a guide wink, had, had gone to the same military school that I had. He had only been there a year, but for some reason he had in his hand the same kind of sword that we officers in the um, military school would have. And it has a 29-inch blade on it. And he, he looks at me and he points the sword at me. He says, ah, oh, karate guy, what would you do against this? And he started swinging that sword sword at me almost like a swashbuckler would you know in a three musketeers movie and uh and i got into a fighting stance and i said well if you knew what you were doing with that i guess i would go ahead and leave now but i think i'll just beat you to death and i started backing him down the hall and he's <laughs> swinging that sword at me you know in a mock battle and he says wait 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 guys i have a great idea and he called all of his executives into his office and he looks at me Sid is still in the office and he says uh so you're the little guy, right? Meaning, you know, the little sports promoter. And I said, yes, that's true. He said, uh, so uh, you really need the superstation, right? And I said, correct. He said, well, next week, Norman Lear is trying to shut down the superstation and we're having uh, meetings in Washington, you know, congressional meetings. Would you go up there and testify for us? And I said, yeah, we'll do that. And he said, well, what can I do for you? And I said, well, we want to have Jerry Rome against Ross Scott in the World Heavyweight Championship in the Omni in March, and we wanted to broadcast it on the superstation. He said, okay, we'll do it. Ted says, uh, uh, Sid Pike says, Ted, I already told him we wouldn't do that. He says, shut up, Ted, we're, we're going to do this. <laughs> nice. So we did this event. It was one of the greatest fights. If you look at it from 1977 and compare it with any fights that you're looking at today, you'll wonder why the sport, you know, didn't grow faster than it did with that kind of action. But as a as a neophyte in the broadcast business, I thought, well, now this would be a great way to get it on the major network. So I, I, I go to New York and I knock on the door at CBS and I get in to see a, a vice president of programming there. And, and uh, he pats me on the head and he says, well, son, this is uh, this is really a great, um, a great idea. It's a great fight you brought me. But we don't air programming from other people's networks. So I was trying to sell him the Roscott Jerry Rome fight that had already been edited. We owned the rights to it. And he said, um, however, we're covering a Bill Wallace fight in Las Vegas uh, next month. And I'd like you to be our commentator because you, you actually speak about the sport so well. I said, well... I'm actually at odds with those people. I don't think they would uh, approve that. And he said, they don't have to approve it. If they don't approve it, we just won't do the fight. I said, <laughs> nice. I said okay. So I show up there and that's going to be my very first uh, broadcast position. It'll be live on CBS Sports. And uh, that would have been in April of 1977. And so the people that I'm talking about from the PKA at the time and I got together in a meeting the night before and they 
said, why don't we all work together on behalf of the sport? And so at that point, they invited me to come in as a vice president in the PKA and then to help them do the things that they needed to do internally. That's how I ended up doing the broadcasting. And then CBS continued to hire me to do that. And then the folks at NBC did the same thing. And so I'd already done that. And then when our sports agent for television, which was International Management Group, which is the group that ended up putting together the deal that sold the UFC for $4.2 billion a few years ago, they were representing us. And so when ESPN came on board, they reached out to us and said, we've got this new sports network that's going to start and they're going to do just exclusively sports. And so we're going to get you guys on. So they got us on for um, 40 events the first year or 44, the first year of 40, the second year. And then we went into a longer term contract with doing 30 events a year. And I did the commentary on all of those. Wow until I needed to do something else. And then we brought John Worley in and, and had him take my place uh, as the commentator. Do you know roughly how many how many events you did commentating for on TV? It was about a thousand hours uh, altogether wow. on NBC, CBS, ESPN. I, I did the same thing on Showtime. We did Karate Mania series uh, on Showtime. We started with Karate Mania 3 with them out of uh, Caesars Tahoe and uh, then ended with Terrio versus Rufus there on Karate Mania 8 in Montreal. But it was about a thousand hours altogether. That's cool. Now, and I was reading on your site, on the PKA site, you're actually working to to try to bring the PKA back and, and, and bring kickboxing back to that, that glory of the old days. How's, how's that going and what, what are some projects you're working on for that? Well, there's a lot going on there and I'm, I'm not free to talk about it yet, okay. but if we, if we do a part two later, I'll be able to bring you up to speed oh, and it will cool. hopefully be in, in full gear by then. Very well, definitely. Well, if yeah, if you get new news about that, we'll definitely want to talk about that because that's exciting. Yeah. You know, I've only been to live in person. I've only uh, sat in the audience for maybe three kickboxing events ever, and, wow. and they've they've been local. Uh, one big one. One was actually in August of 1995, and you might have been involved in that. I don't know. It was it was actually a kickboxing event the night before the Long Beach Internationals in August of 95. I, I remember watching Pete Sugarfoot Cunningham in, in a fight. So. No, that was probably probably a WK event. If okay, it was Cunningham. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, like I said that was quite a quite a while ago, but uh, and then a couple of local ones and martial arts tournaments added some kickboxing to their like taekwondo events and stuff, and I got to go and watch some of those. So. Oh, neat. I, I would, if they had more local ones, I would definitely go to them. So, um, yeah. No, and and you still currently, you still currently teach and run a school. So I'm curious, how do you think? You know, since you first opened your first school at the age of 19, how do you think your teaching style has changed over the years? Well, that's a good question. We, um, I, I don't actually run the school anymore. Oh. I got hit in a car two years ago, and I ended up uh, after about six months turning it, um, turning the school over. To, uh, some of our senior black belts and okay. they're, they're doing a good job with it, but I'm teaching private lessons. Okay. And the, the way I trained our instructors that are running the school now to teach and, and, uh, and the way I teach now myself is really based on those seven habits of highly effective people principles that I was talking about from Stephen Covey. Okay. And, um, so the, the techniques, uh, we try, we, we really focus a lot on Krav Maga in the private lessons mm -hmm. and, uh, Krav Maga, as you know, is a, a combination of many different kinds of martial arts from, from grappling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu to knife fighting and, and you name it, um, you know, handgun, 
and and so forth. And so the self-defense part of what we teach now is not like it would have been in the early Tang Sudo or Korean karate days where, you know, someone's standing in a front stance and they step forward with a high punch to your face. You know, they, they step back, they down block with their left hand, they step forward and they punch with their right hand and they're in front stance. And then you do a a high block or middle block or a knife hand block, and then you follow up with that. It, it really incorporates the same kind of principles we would use in kickboxing and applies those in the Krav Maga scenario where you're either ambushed by someone, i.e. you're not squared off with them and you're not getting ready and you aren't key-eyeing to each other to make sure you know that your timing is right when you start and all those kinds of things. Um, so I guess the, the short answer would be we, we try to make the teaching as practical as possible. And then with the kids implement not some mystical Zen principles, you know, like Kwai Chen Kane might have mentioned, you know, talking about throwing a, a rock across the surface of a still pond, but more about habits one through seven and how you're going to use those things in your life to be a leader and a, a thinker, as, especially growing up in a world where people are trying to tell you what to think and not how to think. Okay. So let's say someone approaches you and they say, I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts. I've never done it in my life. What are some tips you'd give them what to look for in a school and an instructor and maybe some things they should possibly avoid in an instructor or school? I don't know. You know, everybody has learned how to talk to talk so well. Um, and it takes so long. Maybe in your life you've, you've been with people who were pretty impressive for maybe three or four or five years. And then all of a sudden you find the character flaw, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you, you can just imagine how many, you, you know, in the world of child molesting, for example, how many coaches, not in martial arts necessarily, but right. coaches from everywhere else how long people have been able to fool them. But I would say to the people that would ask me if I glean that they have, you know, what we used to know as common sense, now known as uncommon sense, since less than 50% of the people have it. Mm -hmm. But assuming that the person that's asking me the question has common sense, I would say, go in and ask yourself if what they're learning in class is going to be practical for you. And if you can, you know, and they will let you enroll for a month. And at the end of that month, ask yourself that same question, is what I'm learning practical or is it going to take me a lifetime to become good at this? You know, it's like, um, you know, many of the Freud trained psychiatrists would love to have you lying on their couches for seven years to have you wonder about why you're biting your fingernails. Uh, where, whereas the Tony Robbins approach is get to it and figure out how you can, you know, get the blocks away, you know, or, you know, put tar on your fingernails or something if it's that bad, you know, figure a way to deal with it. So now your, your background obviously started in traditional martial arts. You got into competition. You did professional kickboxing. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, on MMA, the UFC, and are you a fan? I, I have become a fan of the UFC and I'm admi an admirer of Dana White because he was able to take across the finish line the dream that we created. We organized the dream, though we started, you know, I joined the PKA, you know, of course, I was a fighter in 75, but I joined the PKA in 77 as an administrative person, you know, an executive VP, if you will. 
And uh, in, but in 1979, we actually formed the plan, which the UFC took across the goal line uh, when the Fertitta brothers and Dana White bought it in uh, 2001. And then in 2016 or 17, when they sold it for $4.2 billion, then that was just a mere, you know, four decades, approximately four decades after we created the plan. So I was really proud that he was able to show the world that martial arts deserves to stand next to professional football, professional baseball, professional basketball, hockey, soccer, you name it, as a viable sports entity. And that the athletes in that sport deserve to be compensated at a level that was so much greater than we were able to bring them in, say, the, the Nazca circuit. And even in our kickboxing fights that we had done, we had boxing doing everything they could to destroy us, yep. you know, yeah. all those years. And so if you have two billionaire partners, you know, uh, it helps. And that's really yeah. what we didn't have. So if you had to pick one martial artist to put at the top of your list for someone you truly admire, whether it's someone you've known and met and trained with or just, you know, someone you've, you've read about, can you, can you pick one and put them on the top of your list? It's hard to pick one because I've, I've met so many great people, but, you know, I, I would answer it with Chuck Norris, Jeff Smith, Pat Johnson, Bill Wallace. You know, those, those are the ones that just jump out at the top uh, of, of my mind. Um, uh, Glenn Keeney, you know, Mitchell Bobro. I mean, people that have, have been great, not only, you know, in the ring. Bernard Carrick, you know, um, who was the police commissioner with Giuliani during 911, and each one of them for different reasons. So the good news is that I have been able to meet and, and actually serve with a lot of those people. And the bad news is uh, I've also been able to be around the, uh, the least of them. <laughs> so you, you've mentioned Tony Robbins a few times. I'm just curious, have you ever met him in person and, and talked to him? Because I know he's, a, if I believe, a fourth or fifth degree black belt under June Rhee. I have not met him okay. personally. Um, I've, I've listened to so much of what he does, and I really like his approach to things. Uh, same thing with Stephen Covey. I was never able to meet him. I was able to, one of my favorite interviews that Robert, Tony Robbins ever did was with Stephen Covey. Okay. And uh, it was just a, it, it was a, a, a mind blower for me hearing the two of them talk. And by the end of it, you could tell that Tony Robbins felt like he was talking to what would have been his good dad. He never really had a good dad right. in all of his, his mother's uh, marriages, as I understood it, you know, not one that, that helped form him, but it was like hearing Tony Robbins talk to a surrogate dad by the end of the interview. Nice. So if you had to, could you pick one martial arts philosophy you've learned that is very important to you? You keep coming back to the philosophy oh. and from martial arts that I come back to no, I, I, I really, I guess that would have been at a certain point, the most disappointing part of my life, because when I was drawn to the martial arts originally, it was because of the Zen promise in it. But the Zen promise was a principle that was was able to be defiled by the various men who would use it in order to manipulate others, if that makes sense to you. Oh, yeah. So, uh, in, in the Covey world, he has a great quote, which says that you, you do the right thing for the right reasons and the right principles. 
And so the principles in the martial arts are great, but the philosophy, if you will, I have seen misused so much that I, that I have a hard time dealing with it. Okay. I had one yeah. one seminar that my instructor had us had had held for us, where he brought in Koichi Tohei, who was at the time the number two. Aikido guy in the world. And uh, he was showing us all the Aikido things. And I was a 19 year old, you know, brash competitor. And uh, so um, I, I asked him, he was seated on a chair, a metal folding chair, and he had his legs folded, you know, like I can fold my arms. He was folding his legs like that. And I said, uh, Master Tohei, can you tell me what you would do against a, a combination that looks like this? And I threw about a six-punch combination to him. I, you know, what would you do with Aikido against something like that? And he looked at, at me and he said, well, sir, if I couldn't see it, I don't guess there was much I could do about it, is there? And then he closed his eyes and, and within five seconds, he was going... <laughs> He went sound asleep. So it's like he had a fly land on his shoulder and he flicked the fly off his shoulder and then fell asleep, you know, with no further concern about it. And that seemed to me to, to embody the kind of Zen that I was seeking to attain through martial arts, having missed it, you know, from a, from a dad perspective, you know, as a, as a dad deprived child, you know, not, not having that. So I know it's a big question, the philosophy of martial arts and I, and I, Talk about it uh, like it really embodies what Stephen Covey said, doing the right things for the right reasons with the right principles. His approach is that principles never change. What was right or wrong in the year zero is right or wrong now, whereas so many of the people in our country believe that even things like the Constitution is meant to be an evolving document. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible should be updated to fit their their principles. Now, now the principles are what the principles are. The the mores of the time are what change. And so, not maybe not the question you ask, but that's the best well, answer. That's I have actually a great. That's a great answer. So, got a, a couple more fun ones here. So, do you have a favorite martial arts book? Favorite martial arts book. You know, I guess I would have to say any of the ones that Chuck Norris wrote. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the series that Jesse Bowen has done with the who's who in the martial arts, uh, yes. which he started in. And the last one that we did had Ernie Reyes on the, on the cover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the one the year before that had Chuck Norris on the cover. And uh, we got a chance to share with the world the, the lives of really two great people. So I guess I, I like that, which then ties back into the principle of the martial arts to show how really good martial arts instructors, although they may be flawed in one way or another, can help change so many lives to the positive. I'm glad you mentioned Jesse Bowen. I'm actually uh, interviewing him in about an hour. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, nice. yeah. So it was uh, supposed to be last week, and I got a little little too sick and couldn't do it, so we had to reschedule for today. So well, be sure to tell him that I said that his book was one of my one of my two favorites. Uh, I will do that for sure. So, and and uh, another one favorite martial arts TV show. Uh, it would have been Walker, Texas Ranger with the Green Hornet number two. Nice, nice. I actually was just watching uh, Walker last night. One of the stations we have here plays reruns every night, and I was watching an episode last night. Yeah, so. I just saw that advertised. It's like they have a three-hour block, yeah. you know, and they said focusing on the spare ribs and, you know, when him kicking somebody in the ribs, and I saw that. <laughs> that was a nice promotion. Yep, I actually got uh, I was a little excited when I heard they were remaking it, and then when I saw the remake, I'm like, there's no martial arts in it. 
<laughs> you can't do Walker yeah. without martial. It's a it's an okay yeah. show, but you can't do Walker without martial arts. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a disappointing prequel to uh, the Walker that we knew. Exactly, exactly. All right, and and final question: favorite martial arts movie? Oh, let me think. Uh, you know. Of course, I, I I liked the you know the fact that they happened you know the, the Enter the Dragon and mm. those kind of things, yep. but in, in terms of the fun, it was I think the Bruce Lee movie where he was with um, James Garner and uh, and he and he broke his desk desk with an axe kick and then kicked through the wall into a beauty parlor and uh darned if i can remember the name of oh, it yeah. Right now. yeah that wasn't yeah it wasn't actually a bruce lee movie but he was in it that was um i know what you're talking about and it's gonna drive me crazy uh yeah start, uh, starts with an but M, I, I did a 30 minute tv show with bruce lee when he came to town to promote that movie and uh and and that video got lost which is too bad but uh, oh, wow. i got to you know have it be on the end of the one inch punch and all that kind of stuff uh you know so I guess that's why that became my favorite movie. But there was also one a few Mar- years ago. Was it Marlowe? Was that it? I believe it was. Yes, yeah, Marlowe. Okay. No, no. Well, yeah, yeah. I think you're right because uh, then later I think there was maybe a series that had the name Marlowe. Uh, I believe so. Connected yeah. with it, but there was uh, what's the girl's name? Uh, uh, gosh, jo- Jorgensen or uh, really, really nice looking blonde woman. She was in a film a few years back that really was from all points of view, a, a real favorite of mine. And, and I, I can't, I can't remember what the name of that one was either, but she was a special agent of some kind and, and had just had great fight footage. And of course I loved all of Pat Johnson's choreography and, and the Karate Kid one, two, three, and four, and the Ninja Turtles one, two, and three. And mm-hmm and all of those so those those were all great for me so have you uh watched the new cobra kai i'm curious yeah yeah as a matter of fact uh one of our black belts is doing the stunt work for many of those guys oh, in there cool. and when pat johnson visited us in 2016 we got our picture taken with him noah garrett is his name and and uh it was just one of my favorite books over these last few years has been when god winks at you Okay. Uh, written by um, Squire Rushnell, who's a former ABC vice president. And uh, so all these kind of coincidences, like I talked about with uh, Ted Turner and CBS and the mm-hmm. Quines and, you know, all the PKA stuff and all that, those are all guide winks. And so they're not just coincidences that happen there. They're, they're guide winks. And I think uh, the fact that Noah took his picture with Pat Johnson that day and is now in the Cobra Kai series, you know, is, uh, is, is another one of those great guide winks. That's kind of cool. Cool. Well, Joe, I just want to thank you. This has been such a blast. I, I've loved chatting with you and, and hearing your story. And, and hopefully, like you said, have, have you on a, again when you can share more news about the, 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 the PKA and what they have going forward. Yeah, I look forward to it. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. And if I can be of any further service, please let me know. I will for sure. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Take care. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.